This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. THE MASTER OF THE WORLD by Jules Verne Chapter Eleven: The Campaign So the undiscoverable commander had reappeared upon the territory of the United States. He had never shown himself in Europe, either on the roads or in the seas. He had not crossed the Atlantic, which apparently he could have traversed in three days. Did he then intend to make only America the scene of his exploits? Ought we to conclude from this that he was an American? Let me insist upon this point. It seemed clear that the submarine might easily have crossed the vast sea which separates the new and the old world. Not only would its amazing speed have made its voyage short, in comparison to that of the swiftest steamship, but also it would have escaped all the storms that make the voyage dangerous. Tempest did not exist for it. It had but to abandon the surface of the waves, and it could find absolute calm a few score feet beneath. But the inventor had not crossed the Atlantic, and if he were to be captured now, it would probably be in Ohio, since Toledo is a city of that state. This time the fact of the machine's appearance had been kept secret, between the police and the agent who had warned them, and whom I was hurrying to meet. No journal and many would have paid high for the chance, was printing this news. We had decided that nothing should be revealed until our effort was at an end. No indiscretion would be committed by either my comrades or myself. The man to whom I was sent with an order from Mr. Ward was named Arthur Wells. He awaited us at Toledo. The city of Toledo stands at the western end of Lake Erie. Our train sped during the night across West Virginia and Ohio. There was no delay, and before noon the next day the locomotive stopped in the Toledo depot. John Hart, Nab Walker, and I stepped out with traveling bags in our hands and revolvers in our pockets. Perhaps we should need weapons for an attack, or even to defend ourselves. Scarcely had I stepped from the train when I picked out the man who awaited us. He was scanning the arriving passengers impatiently, evidently as eager and full of haste as I. I approached him. "'Mr. Wells,' said I. "'Mr. Strock?' asked he. "'Yes. I am at your command,' said Mr. Wells. "'Are we to stop any time in Toledo?' I asked. "'No. With your permission, Mr. Strock.' A carriage with two good horses is waiting outside the station, and we must leave at once to reach our destination as soon as possible. We will go at once, I answered, signing to my two men to follow us. Is it far? Twenty miles. And the place is called Black Rock Creek. Having left our bags at a hotel, we started on our drive. Much to my surprise I found there were provisions sufficient for several days packed beneath the seat of the carriage. Mr. Wells told me that the region around Black Rock Creek was among the wildest in the state. There was nothing there to attract either farmers or fishermen. We would not find an inn for our meals, nor a room in which to sleep. 
Fortunately, during the July heat there would be no hardship, even if we had to lie one or two nights under the stars. More probably, however, if we were successful, the matter would not occupy us many hours. Either the commander of the terror would be surprised before he had a chance to escape, or he would take the flight and we must give up all hope of arresting him. I found Arthur Wells to be a man of about forty, large and powerful. I knew him by reputation to be one of the best of our local police agents. Cool in danger and enterprising always, he had proven his daring on more than one occasion at the peril of his life. He had been in Toledo on a wholly different mission, when chance had thrown him on the track of the terror. We drove rapidly along the shore of Lake Erie, toward the southwest. This inland sea of water is on the northern boundary of the United States, lying between Canada on one side and the states of Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New York on the other. If I stop to mention the geographical position of this lake, its depth, its extent, and the waters nearest around, it is because the knowledge is necessary for the understanding of the events which were about to happen. The surface of Lake Erie covers about ten thousand square miles. It is nearly six hundred feet above sea level. It is joined on the northwest, by means of the Detroit River, with the still greater lakes to the westward, and receives their waters. It has also rivers of its own, though of less importance, such as the Rocky, the Cuyahoga, and the Black. The lake empties at its northeastern end into Lake Ontario by means of Niagara River and its celebrated falls. The greatest known depth of Lake Erie is over 130 feet. Hence it will be seen that the mass of its waters is considerable. In short, this is a region of most magnificent lakes. The land, though not situated far northward, is exposed to the full sweep of the Arctic cold. The region to the northward is low, and the winds of winter rush down with extreme violence. Hence Lake Erie is sometimes frozen over from shore to shore. The principal cities on the borders of this great lake are Buffalo at the east, which belongs to New York State, and Toledo in Ohio at the west, with Cleveland and Sandusky, both Ohio cities, at the south. Smaller towns and villages are numerous along the shore. The traffic is naturally large, its annual value being estimated at considerably over two million dollars. Our carriage followed a rough and little-used road along the borders of the lake, and as we toiled along Arthur Wells told me what he had learned. Less than two days before, on the afternoon of July 27th, Wells had been riding on horseback toward the town of Hurley. Five miles outside the town he was riding through a little wood when he saw, far up across the lake, a submarine which rose suddenly above the waves. He stopped, tied his horse, and stole on foot to the edge of the lake. There from behind a tree he had seen with his own eyes, seen this submarine, advance toward him, and stop at the mouth of Black Rock Creek. Was it the famous machine for which the whole world was seeking, which thus came directly to his feet? When the submarine was close to the rocks, two men climbed out upon its deck and stepped ashore. Was one of them this master of the world, who had not been seen since he was reported from Lake Superior? 
Was this the mysterious terror which had thus risen from the depths of Lake Erie? "'I was alone,' said Wells, "'alone on the edge of the creek. If you and your assistants, Mr. Strock, had been there, we four against two, we would have been able to reach these men and seize them before they could have regained their boat and fled.' "'Probably,' I answered. "'But were there no others on the boat with them?' Still, if we had seized the two, we could have at least have learned who they were. "'And above all,' added Wells, "'if one of them turned out to be the captain of the terror.' "'I have only one fear, Wells. This submarine, whether it is the one we seek, or another, may have left the creek since your departure.' "'We shall know that in a few hours now. Pray heaven they are still there. Then, when night comes?' But, I asked, did you remain watching in the wood until night? No. I left after an hour's watching, and rode straight for the telegraph station at Toledo. I reached there late at night, and sent immediate word to Washington. That was night before last. Did you return yesterday to Black Rock Creek? Yes. The submarine was still there? In the same spot. And the two men? the same two men. I judged that some accident had happened, and they came to this lonely spot to repair it. Probably so, said I, some damage which made it impossible for them to regain their usual hiding place, if only they are still here. I have reason to believe they will be, for quite a lot of stuff was taken out of the boat and laid about upon the shore and as well as I could discern from a distance they seemed to be working on board. Only the two men? Only the two. But, protested I, can two be sufficient to handle an apparatus of such speed, and of such intricacy, as to be at once automobile, boat, and submarine? I think not, Mr. Strzok, but I only saw the same two. Several times they came to the edge of the little wood where I was hidden, and gathered sticks for a fire which they made upon the beach. The region is so uninhabited, and the creek so hidden from the lake that they ran little danger of discovery. They seemed to know this. You would recognize them both again? Perfectly. One was of middle size, vigorous, and quick of movement, heavily bearded. The other was smaller, but stocky and strong. Yesterday, as before, I left the wood about five o'clock and hurried back to Toledo. There I found a telegram from Mr. Ward, notifying me of your coming, and I awaited you at the station. Summed up, then, the news amounted to this. For forty hours past, a submarine, presumably the one we sought, had been hidden in Black Rock Creek, engaged in repairs. Probably these were absolutely necessary and we should find the boat still there. As to how the terror came to be in Lake Erie, Arthur Wells and I discussed that, and agreed that it was a very probable place for her. The last time she had been seen was on Lake Superior. From there to Lake Erie the machine could have come by the roads of Michigan, but since no one had remarked its passage, and as both the police and the people were specially aroused and active in that portion of the country, it seemed more probable that the terror had come by water. There was a clear route through the chain of the Great Lakes and their rivers, 
by which in her character of a submarine she could easily proceed undiscovered. And now, if the terror had already left the creek, or if she escaped when we attempted to seize her, in what direction would she turn? In any case there was little chance of following her. There were two torpedo-destroyers at the port of Buffalo, at the other extremity of Lake Erie. By treaty between the United States and Canada there are no vessels of war whatever on the Great Lakes. These might, however, have been little launches belonging to the Customs Service. Before I left Washington Mr. Ward had informed me of their presence, and a telegram to their commanders would, if there were need, start them in pursuit of the terror. But despite their splendid speed, how could they vie with her? And if she plunged beneath the waters, they would be helpless. Moreover, Arthur Wells averred that in case of a battle, the advantage would not be with the destroyers, despite their large crews and many guns. Hence, if we did not succeed this night, the campaign would end in failure. Arthur Wells knew Black Rock Creek thoroughly, having hunted there more than once. It was bordered in most places with sharp rocks, against which the waters of the lake beat heavily. Its channel was some thirty feet deep so that the terror could take shelter either upon the surface or under water. In two or three places the steep banks gave way to sand beaches, which led to little gorges reaching up toward the woods, two or three hundred feet. It was seven in the evening when our carriage reached these woods. There was still daylight enough for us to see easily, even in the shade of the trees. To have crossed openly to the edge of the creek would have exposed us to the view of the men of the terror, if she were still there, and thus giving her warning to escape. "'Had we better stop here?' I asked Wells, as our rig drew up to the edge of the woods. "'No, Mr. Strock,' said he. "'We had better leave the carriage deeper in the woods, where there will be no chance whatever of our being seen.' "'Can the carriage drive under these trees?' "'It can,' declared Wells. "'I have already explored these woods thoroughly. Five or six hundred feet from here there is a little clearing, where we will be completely hidden, and where our horses may find pasture. Then, as soon as it is dark, we will go down to the beach, at the edge of the rocks which shut in the mouth of the creek. Thus, if the terror is still there, we shall stand between her and escape.' eager as we all were for action. It was evidently best to do as Wells suggested, and wait for night. The intervening time could well be occupied as he said. Leading the horses by the bridle, while they dragged the empty carriage, we proceeded through the heavy woods. The tall pines, the stalwart oaks, the cypress scattered here and there, made the evening darker overhead. Beneath our feet spread a carpet of scattered herbs, pine-needles, and dead leaves. Such was the thickness of the upper foliage that the last rays of the setting sun could no longer penetrate here. We had to feel our way, and it was not without some knocks that the carriage reached the clearing ten minutes later. This clearing, surrounded by great trees, formed a sort of oval, covered with rich grass. Here it was still daylight, and the darkness would scarcely deepen for over an hour. There was thus time to arrange an encampment and to rest a while after our hard trip over the rough and rocky roads. 
Of course we were intensely eager to approach the creek and see if the terror were still there. But prudence restrained us. A little patience, and the night would enable us to reach a commanding position unsuspected. Wells urged this strongly, and despite my eagerness I felt that he was right. The horses were unharnessed, and left to browse under the care of the coachman who had driven us. The provisions were unpacked, and John Hart and Nab Walker spread out a meal on the grass at the foot of a superb cypress, which recalled to me the forest odours of Morganton and Pleasant Garden. We were hungry and thirsty, and food and drink were not lacking. Then our pipes were lighted to calm the anxious moments of waiting that remained. Silence reigned within the wood. The last song of the birds had ceased. With the coming of night the breeze fell, little by little, and the leaves scarcely quivered even at the tops of the highest branches. The sky darkened rapidly after sundown, and twilight deepened into obscurity. I looked at my watch. It was half-past eight. It is time, Wells. When you will, Mr. Strock. Then let us start. We cautioned the coachman not to let the horses stray beyond the clearing. Then we started. Wells went in advance. I followed him, and John Hart and Nab Walker came behind. In the darkness we three would have been helpless without the guidance of Wells. Soon we reached the farther border of the woods, and before us stretched the banks of Black Rock Creek. All was silent. All seemed deserted. We could advance without risk. If the terror was there she had cast anchor behind the rocks. But was she there? That was the momentous question. As we approached the denouement of this exciting affair, my heart was in my throat. Wells motioned to us to advance. The sand of the shore crunched beneath our steps. The two hundred feet between us and the mouth of the creek were crossed softly, and a few minutes sufficed to bring us to the rocks at the edge of the lake. There was nothing. Nothing. The spot where Wells had left the terror twenty-four hours before was empty. The master of the world was no longer at Black Rock Creek. End of chapter.